locking myself in a KFC and just eating chicken 24-7, I could not possibly eat that number of calories. Is that what you're encountering right now? You end up just thinking about your next meal constantly. You just dread your next meal. You dread your next meal. And then once you've put on some muscle, you are supposed to then, you know, lose the weight. So then you go to uh, just being starving all the time. It's a lovely way to live, being healthy. (laughs) I'm on the fuck it plan right now, where uh, I will try something for a couple days and then go, fuck it. I'm busy. (laughs) Joe Biden has announced that he is running to be a really, really, really old president. Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon, their careers were given a bullet to the back of their head by their respective networks. Immediately after the news broke that Tucker Carlson was out, CNN was was like, let's just get Don Lemon out of here, too. Hi, I'm Thomas Chatterton Williams. And I'm Jeff Chatterton Mauer. I'm a writer. And I'm a comedian. And we host a podcast called Wrong Think. More of a question than a comment. In addition to being more of a question than a comment, it is also more of a podcast we want people to know about than just two guys talking into a microphone for no reason. So we'd like to ask you to please subscribe to the show. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. If you don't like the show, then please punish your enemies by sharing it with them. And also please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. Grinder, we got a lot of listeners on Grinder. The Wrong Think Podcast. Thinking, except bad. Thomas Chatterton Williams. Can I call you Tom the Chatterton Dragon? Because you sort of live by the sea. You live within a couple hours drive of the sea. So I think that's close enough. What do you think? Paris is landlocked. <laughs> it, it, but near the sea. The Seine runs to the sea, does it not? I believe it does. I wouldn't bet my life on it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it has to be a, some type of tributary. Because my feeling is Tom the Chatterton Dragon is just too good of a name to pass up. I'm dying to use it. So I'm willing to fudge Paris's proximity to the sea for that reason. Is that cool? Don't let the facts get in the way of, like a, of a better story. I agree. TC Dubs, how's it going? How's your week been? It's one of those weeks where, you know, I'm in my early 40s. I've been exercising pretty consciously for some years now, but I have a new program that a trainer made for me with like nutrition tips. And I'm trying to, have you ever worked out and you try to eat like the amount of calories that they tell you you're supposed to oh, eat if you want to? God, yes. To put on muscle? It's an insane, are you talking about about that to put on muscle? The number of calories you're supposed to eat is insane. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard, bro. It's like really difficult. <laughs> I, when I learned the number I was supposed to eat to put on muscle, I was like, to hell with it. I'm just going to eat as much as I can because short of locking myself in a KFC and just eating chicken 24-7, I could not possibly eat that number of calories. Is that what you're encountering right now? Yeah, man. And it's like you end up just thinking about your next meal constantly. It's like no matter how much you try to plan and get done, it's like food is on your mind to such an extent. And then like you're supposed to have a gram of protein for every pound you weigh. So like that's quite a lot of protein, actually. (laughs) Every meal is like, is there enough? Is there 40 grams of protein in this meal or how am I? I have a deficit now. It's lunchtime and I'm already at a deficit. Are you doing it? Because I never was able to do it. Like I said, I just I just consigned myself to, all right, as much as I can get. I never got there. Are you doing it? Yeah, I've been, I mean, I've, I've been pretty much doing it uh, for the past week and change, like this new eating. Like I've maintained like the exercising pretty consistently, but I'm making a new sustained effort to eat the way that you need to. Mm-hmm. And a very difficult component of it as well is that I'm supposed to drink four liters of water a day, which is another job in itself. Yeah. 
<laughs> four liters of water every day. It's like it's like drinking four liters of water is a full time job. It's a lot, <laughs> but it has the unanticipated benefit of like when you're that hydrated, you don't even want to drink like alcohol as much as you used to. So it has this like all around like healthifying effect where you drink less alcohol, you drink more water, sleep better. Yeah. So, you know, I'm always full. I'm constantly at the grocery store, but I'm feeling good. That's a long winded answer to your question. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's completely the opposite of dieting. You just dread your next meal. You dread your next meal. And then once you've put on some muscle, you are supposed to then, you know, lose the weight. So then you go to uh, just being starving all the time. It's a lovely way to live being healthy. <laughs> yeah. And then you combine that, you know, you're like, you're trying to be conscious of wellness. And so you're, then you're in the Sam Harris app, meditating 15 minutes every morning. <laughs> plus you got to stretch every morning. It's like, when do you have time for anything other than like self-improvement? It's crazy. Yeah. No, you, you don't ever have time. Well, you're just drinking water 24 seven. You're drinking water and protein shakes and uh, chicken breasts without the skin. It's hell on earth, yep. but it's apparently how we're supposed to live, I guess. I'm not into it. This is how we're supposed to live. No, I, I'm on the fuck it plan right now where uh, <laughs> I will try something for a couple of days and then go, fuck it, I'm busy, and then just revert to whatever the hell I want to do. My goals, my fitness goals, this I'm 42, my fitness goals at this point just don't have the wheels come completely off. That's where I'm at. If I'm not going down South Capitol Street on a jazzy scooter, just occupying six horizontal feet of the sidewalk as I go, then I'm by my standards, I have met my goals. I am healthy in my mind. Yeah, I mean, that's, at least you're not contributing to white supremacy. I was... Not, not intentionally, no. Not intentionally. But that, yeah, we don't want to like make light of the fact that you're always contributing to white supremacy. Just by existing. In a real sense. Whenever I draw breath. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right, like as long as you're here, you're contributing to white supremacy. But intentionally, by not contributing to fitness culture, I think that you're on the right side of history. I have a windowless closet that I go to. I spend about nine, 10 hours a day in there because when I'm in that closet, speaking to no one, hearing nothing, uh, interacting with no one anyway, I am contributing to white supremacy the minimal amount that I can. So, But not zero. But not, it's never zero. It's never zero as long no. as my white ass is drawing breath. But like I said, I do do nine to 10 hours of closet time uh, just to minimize my impact. And procreating. I procreate. I know. And my wife is white too. I, oh my God. I know she, I know so she is. So deep, so deep in it. She's Jewish. Does that get me anything? Or does that make it worse? What are the rules? It, depending on who you ask. <laughs> in some systems, she makes it worse. In other systems, uh, y your wife and your kids are no longer white. That's right. So That's yeah. right. <laughs> I do look my son in the eyes every night, though, and say, you are the problem. You are the problem. You are making things worse. Now go to bed. That's how we end every day. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a healthy way to raise a kid. <laughs> yeah, no, he's seriously fucked in the head. He's only four months old. Why don't we talk about uh, <laughs> happier things we have a lot to talk about uh, today. Uh, Joe Biden has announced that he is running to be a really, really, really old president. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has breathlessly informed us that equitable grading is sweeping what turns out to be an extremely small percentage of the nation. But first, we have to talk about this in much the same way that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, political rivals, died on the same day. Earlier this week, Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon their careers were given a bullet to the back of their head by their respective networks. In media terms, that means they're going to have a podcast soon. Don Lemon and Tucker Carlson are both out. Thomas, what are your thoughts on that? 
That was a crazy um, situation where immediately after the news broke that Tucker Carlson was out, CNN was was like, let's just get Don Lemon out of here too. We no longer need to have that guy. Can I ask? Before you go forward, I don't want to hear what you have to say, but do you think that was intentional? Because part of me thought CNN was like, "Eh, Don Lemon, uh, all right. It's like they decided they're going to do it. And then they heard Tucker Carlson was out and they're like, oh, let's get this one in under the radar. Let's do the Don Lemon thing now. Do you think there's any chance that happened? I think that can't be completely discounted. That makes sense to me. I mean, I I know Don Lemon had basically said this extraordinary thing several months ago about the Nikki Haley thing. Nikki Haley being past her prime. (laughs) And it was one of these amazing gaffes because it wasn't just that he said something offensive, but it seems that he fundamentally, really profoundly misunderstood what people mean when they say a woman is past her prime. And it was, it seemed that he was confusing competence in a professional uh, scenario with uh, fertility, childbearing capabilities. Yeah. <laughs> and even when he was challenged, he really, he really powered through that, that mishap and, and said, you know, I'm just saying what the knowledge is out there. You can Google it. Uh, a woman's in her prime in her 20s, 30s, and maybe 40s. It's not me. It's I don't blame the messenger. Uh, it yeah. was one of the worst. Uh, it was actually crazy. Yeah, I agree. That that defense was what made me think, oh, all right, now I gotta. I actually have to downgrade my opinion of you. Because saying a dumb thing, look, I'm a comedian. I got this podcast. I say dumb things all the time. It's going to happen. When you're speaking extemporaneously, it's going to happen. The question is, after you say something dumb, do you then realize, oh, I have said something stupid here? Or do you affirm the stupid thing was not an accident? It's a thing that you actually believe and in fact stand behind. And by saying what he said, which, and we're trying to recreate this, I, I know it's on YouTube, so everyone should look it up if they want to hear exactly what he said. But he said, like, Google it. Google it, everybody. It's like, yeah. well, you know, Google, when is a woman in her prime? Which, like you said, I'm not <laughs> sure that's going to get the answer that you're looking for in terms of when is a woman best suited to be a legislator. And also, what does the internet think is a real bad standard by which to assess anything? So I, that, that did make me think, oh, Don Lemon, even perhaps more of a dummy than I realized. When you have the platform of a, of a major morning a cable news show and you're uh, deferring to the authority of Google, it is very strange. Yeah, it's a very strange it's abdication bad. of your own platform in favor of uh, just a random like uh, talk on Google. But the thing is that I'm old enough to remember when Don Lemon, Maria Bartiromo, even Lou Dobbs, Tucker Carlson, even these people started as more or less normal journalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don Lemon used to be a straight like, uh, tell you the news guy. And then like he gradually got more um, opinionated and would say things, you know, that were like respectability politics in the black community. And then, you know, he just started getting like the Lou Dobbs trajectory of just getting weirder and weirder and no longer like having that money line show or Maria Bartiromo, like you're no longer just like talking about Wall Street. Something has changed and now you've become this kind of reflection of the wider distortions in the culture. Like these anchors have held up a mirror to the perversions that have been happening in our society. In that way, I'm even almost sympathetic to them. (laughs) Yeah, I I would co-sign all of that except for the word sympathetic, I think. I, I think it is definitely true that these people, you know, they're they're cultivating their brand, right? Because is it news or is it entertainment? It's on the line. You're on television. It has to be something, uh, some element of entertainment or else you're not going to get viewers and you're going to get fired for that reason. So yeah, they're all kind of trying to cultivate their brand, aren't they? Or at least the shitty ones are. And some of the names you brought up, yeah, Lou Dobbs does seem like a guy who once was a normal guy 
And then he kind of found out what works. And for him, it's immigration. And he just leaned into that. And that's all he ever talked about. And you're right. Don Lemon has gone through like a couple of iterations. Yeah. Don Lemon is like trying different things out over the years. Oh, yeah. I guess it was a big moment. I think I forget what year it would have been, but he was relatively early and it was a big moment for him to come out as gay, as a very visible face of CNN and a black high profile anchor. Um, And that was kind of path breaking. And I think he got a lot of goodwill and a lot of leeway from that. You know, he had this like tradition of always getting drunk on uh, New Year's Eve uh, on CNN broadcasts and people kind of liked him for that. Um, But he's always been like a kind of quirky, silly guy. Taffy Brodesser Ackner from the New York Times Magazine, when she was at GQ, she had this kind of amazingly funny profile of Don Lemon where she, she, this was several years ago, she met up with him at the restaurant at MoMA and he starts really mansplaining to her that uh, sorbet is pronounced sorbet. That's how the the piece opens and and he just really does Doubles down, and she's like, "I think it's sorbet." He's like, "No, no, no. Trust me, it's sorbet." And then, actually, like the waiter comes. You're sort of French, which is it, for the record, so we all know. Oh, it, it, oh, it's totally sorbet. And the waiter comes sorbet. to the okay. table, and he says, "Excuse, excuse me, isn't it sorbet?" Uh, and and the waiter goes, "No, sir, it's sorbet." And then he and then he goes, "Oh well, never mind." Anyway, and he doesn't even like admit the mistake or own up to it or place any significance on it after he's just been talking about it for 10, 15 minutes. It's, a, it's an amazing piece because his psychology is really... And you know, that piece, that's the first thing that came to mind uh, for me when he had the, the Nikki Haley thing about a woman's pastor prime. It's just like in the face of contradictory evidence, he just it, he just shrugs it off. He doesn't care. It's an amazing... I, uh, and the thing that's crazy about Don Lemon is like, I always thought that this is kind of a young guy, even though he's been around forever. He's 57 years old. That blew my mind. He's older than Tucker Carlson. Black don't crack. I also would not have guessed 57. Even He looks pretty good. For I mean... You know, they're miracle workers, the makeup department on TV, but I would not have guessed 57. He looks... Don, bad news, you're fired. Good news, you look like a million damn dollars. He does not look 57. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't work those miracles on Lou Dobbs. <laughs> Burn, take that, Lou Dobbs. TC Dubs just took you down a peg. Yeah, or maybe, or you know, for all we know, maybe they did. I don't know. Um, it's interesting in that that sorbet sorbet story, which you just told, which I, that's fantastic. I wish I had known that before. Um, there are sort of two elements of that that seem to be relevant here. Number one, being a bit of a dummy, which was my take on Don Lemon before all this. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't watch a lot of CNN, but he pops up sometimes. Uh, you know, there'll be like a clip on Twitter and I will see it and sometimes think, this is this man is perhaps a little bit of a dummy. And number two, misogyny, because there are more rumors and, you know, mm. obviously I don't know what's true and what's not, but Variety did run a whole article quite recently called Don Lemon's Misogyny at CNN Exposed, Malicious Texts, Mocking Female Coworkers, yeah. and Diva-like Behavior. I read it. There's a, a quote in it, which... I think told me a lot. Sold out of Brian, who is one of the people with whom Don Lemon has butted heads, one of the people who seems to think Don Lemon is a misogynist. Uh, she told Variety, Don has long had a habit of saying idiotic and inaccurate things. So it sounds pretty, in, in reference to a, a mis- allegedly misogynistic thing he said, so it sounds pretty on brand for him. The fact that she would give that quote on the record to Variety mm-hmm. tells me she feels really confident on dying on the Don Lemon is a misogynist and a bit of a dummy hill. So that, to me, that makes me believe the claims that much more. Yeah. And um, there was something recently with uh, supposedly he had been, you know, really um, making a fuss about Caitlin Collins, his co-host, uh, 
interrupting him, uh, you know, behind the scenes. He was he was apparently livid about that, and the production staff uh, wasn't happy. And I mean, I think the ratings haven't been pretty good. So it seemed to me like he he was on a trajectory that was headed towards this. But as soon as the news of Tucker broke, it, it seems like CNN just slipped that one under the radar. And, and it yep. worked because, you know, it kind of got it got completely drowned out on Twitter. I don't even know if Don Lemon was trending when I saw the news. Yeah. It, well, you know, I think we have uh, somewhat righted that wrong by talking about Don Lemon first and Tucker Carlson second. But let's get to Tucker because that that's equity right there. That, exactly. That's equity. Equity in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Tucker Carlson is probably the, I mean, he certainly got bigger ratings than Don Lemon. He certainly, I would argue, was a hell of a lot more inflammatory than Don Lemon. I've given my take on Don, Don Lemon, bit oh, of a yeah. dummy. Tucker Carlson, legitimate bad dude, in my humble opinion. I'm happy to see him go, but I, and I wrote this on my Substack this week. I feel like he's just going to be replaced by a guy who does similar stuff. There's a market for the crap that he does. I believe another intrepid entrepreneur will step up and fill that market. Long story short, I don't think a whole hell of a lot is going to change. I don't think we're rid of his viewpoints, much as I wish that we were. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, you can't be rid of the viewpoints because they clearly resonate with an enormous amount of the electorate. I mean, Tucker Carlson had, he wasn't just doing better numbers than Don Lemon. He was doing better numbers than everybody. But what's interesting about this is that Fox... Fox Numbers-wise, he was destroying it. Yeah, uh, oftentimes averaging more than 3 million viewers a night. I mean, but Fox... Uh, is making the the statement that it made when it let go of Bill O'Reilly and others that, you know, no one's bigger than the network. And I bet, well, actually, Glenn Beck had the same fate. These stars start to walk around like they own the place. And Fox has always been able to show that actually, like, the network makes the big nightly news anchor. And the next person they put in that spot is almost guaranteed to do extraordinary numbers. And you don't really hear about Bill O'Reilly anymore. And you don't hear about, you know, any of those people once they're let go. So I wouldn't be surprised if actually, yeah, the it's like Trumpism without Trump. The the populism that Tucker yep. Carlson was good at is not dependent on him specifically. I mean, he's been in the game for many years without anything like that kind of a following, without that type of an influence. It was really like the marriage of his subject matter at a time when Trump made populism salient and Fox gave him the platform. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think that... Uh, it could easily be worse what's coming next. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that Tucker Carlson was somebody like, I was not invited to be on the show, but had I been invited, I wouldn't have oh, gone on. Sorry. No, it was a lot. <laughs> it was a line <laughs> at which I thought like I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't just sit down and talk with him personally for me, but I don't find his show to be contributing something positive to the social fabric of your know, American political discourse. Uh, but with that said, it's not that uh, you can't write a nuanced piece about what he sometimes was able to get right. Just like you couldn't, you could still write a nuanced take about Trump actually isn't wrong on every single issue that he ever touched. And so it was really mm -hmm. shocking to me is that the American Prospect magazine, you know, a, a magazine from the left, two journalists there published a piece that acknowledged that Tucker Carlson skirted into a kind of white nationalist, anti-immigrant, great replacement kind of discourse, and lots of other kind of flavors that are distasteful to liberals and progressives. But he also did something that very few people within, you know, the kind of mainstream elite uh, liberal media do, which is that he questioned, you know, um, the consensus, uh, the kind of corporate consensus. He 
questioned, you know, why we don't pay more attention to the extraordinary levels of inequality uh, here in America while we have limitless funds for, for wars overseas. Things that we can have an honest disagreement about, but just for pointing out that he addressed certain topics that were not being addressed and, uh, you know, that he held people to account on the left and the right of the political spectrum that weren't typically held to account by other anchors and other stations in such a position of visibility. Just for pointing out that he got some things, if not correct, then, then, then not necessarily completely wrong. This publication, The American Prospect, and the journalists who published the piece and the editor uh, who commissioned it were just destroyed on Twitter in a way that yeah. uh, made the editor uh, have to you know, publish one of these terrifying and soul-crushing accountability statements, you know. The, oh, no. Did they do one of those? Oh, yeah, man. The editors know I knew he, the first part of the story. I didn't know about the account. Of, oh, God. Oh. oh, man. It's just like, it's really, I'm, I can read a little bit of it. It's, it's really just depressing, man. It's like, um, I certainly knew this would be controversial, but it is my job as an editor to make sure that whatever journalism or opinion we publish upholds our mission of better understanding the structures of politics and power. I don't think we quite got there with this story. So the guy just spends two kind of hand-wringing paragraphs just throwing his own journalists under the bus to appease... Jamel Bowie and some other people uh, at other publications. And it's just, this is part of the whole entire problem. And everybody reading that knows that this is not in service of the truth. This is in service of the same thing that we have a problem with Tucker Carlson doing, just kind of uh, appeasing the echo chamber. It's all indicative of... Yeah, it's like they learned nothing from the James Bennett thing when the New York Times subjected the uh, Tom Cotton piece to a second review. And second thought, that was not up to our journalistic standards. And this is not about caving to our employees. This is about, we, we, we thought about it some more and uh, we realized, you know what, this is not up to our journalistic standards. Like, Jesus Christ. Number one, you're not fooling anybody. Number two, have some spine. You have to stand up for your reporters. Well, if, that's if, the word. Spine? Yeah, that's yeah. what's missing. It's yeah. just extraordinary. It, I'd like to say I'm surprised they got blowback for that. I'm not surprised they got blowback for that because we do live in this super simple binary world where, oh, Tucker Carlson's one of the bad people. And therefore, the only thing you were allowed to say about Tucker Carlson is that he's, he's one of the bad people. The point right. they're making in the article, it seems so uh, I, non-controversial. I've already, in this very podcast, said I think Tucker Carlson is a bad dude. But nonetheless, it doesn't mean he's wrong about everything. And in fact, I think often when you have strong disagreements with somebody and really strong disagreements that are the product of very different worldviews, if you can find those things that you do actually agree on, that's valuable. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. I'll say this about Tucker Carlson. There is a part of the right that is really hawkish. And when it comes to places like Iran, the John Bolton types, they are really beating the drums for wars with Iran. Tucker Carlson is not. So there is a place where Tucker Carlson, and, or at least the Tucker Carlson character that he plays on Fox News. And I agree in that I do not want us to stumble into a war with Iran. So there, I've just identified a place that Tucker Carlson and I agree. Isn't it almost certain that with anyone who has a large numbers of, uh, number of opinions, you are going to agree at some point? That you're going to find something where you overlap, broken clocks right twice a day, that type of thing? Absolutely. Disappointing that it's controversial to say that. Absolutely. And the reason why it's controversial is this is this tendency that has really made productive disagreement and discussion all but impossible. It's this idea that, you know, I've talked about so much in the past few years that the lens of social justice is the only lens through which any event, idea, policy, 
any aspect of our shared reality can be observed through. So Tucker Carlson might have something to say about compassion for truck drivers being put out of work by automated AI powered uh, electric Tesla delivery trucks, but that doesn't matter. And compassion for, you know, working class people being put out of work doesn't matter because the only lens through which we can judge whether he has something to say or whether, you know, it's okay to take his point of view seriously is the lens of, of social justice. And he's talking about white people being replaced by immigrants from Latin America. And so therefore, he's uh, he's out and it doesn't and nothing else can be examined on the merits that have anything to do with something that doesn't touch on the fact that he is a white nationalist adjacent uh, xenophobe. And it's like, I think xenophobia is bad. It's obviously bad, but it's not the only bad in the world. And it's not the only thing I can think about at any given time. Just like racism is obviously bad and it has impacted my life, but it's not the only thing that's ever impacted my life adversely. And some people who have had racist uh, ideas have also had ideas that have contributed to aspects of, of reality that I value very much. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just this this idea that, that because he's wrong on aspects of social justice orthodoxy, an article can't even <laughs> explain his larger significance because that context is irrelevant. I, I think yeah. it's really poisonous and it's, it's, it's kind of crazy for the left to be the thinking, the so-called thinking side and to be so willing to turn their thinking caps or I'm getting this metaphor yeah. all crazy. Take their thinking caps off and lock them in in the closet or whatever. Yeah, it's I mean, the blowback to an article like this is another moment that makes me think for some people, and let's not say everyone on the left is doing this because, you know, I'm on the left. I don't know where you consider yourself, but it's, I'm not doing that. Let's not say everyone on the left is doing it. But for a lot of people on the left. No, I'm on the left, too. Yeah, I'm liberals not. Anyway, for a lot of people on the left, it's just about virtue signaling. With The second Tucker Carlson comes up, you kick into your Tucker Carlson is bad program and you shake your fist. It's the, the two minutes hate in 1984. It proved that you hate Tucker Carlson more than the person standing next to you. And if you acknowledge anything like, oh, well, he's right about the truck drivers, then you're you're not doing the hate as well as everyone next to you. It's sick. It's sick. It's, right. it's not good. And uh, we should not do it. Can I say that what I think is super interesting about this is that he was killing it numbers wise. Every time somebody is out, a major media figure is out. You know, I work in television. I always think like, yeah, because they always say like, well, they're out for this reason. You know, we're standing on principle here. I always think, yeah, but also the numbers were shitty. Like that's 100% what it was with Megyn Kelly. She said that thing about like uh, blackface and Halloween costumes. And then shortly after that, her show was canceled. Everyone said, oh, her show got canceled because of that. It's kind of a straw that broke the camel's back situation. The numbers for that show were bad. (laughs) And what I hope everyone understands is that I hadn't realized that. Oh, Thomas, I struggle for words to describe how how poorly that show was doing numbers wise. It's all about numbers in television. That's not weird. That's just the way it works. And if your numbers are great, the network will put up with a lot of bullshit. And I am not surprised that Don Lemon got the boot after Trump's presidency. I feel like Trump's presidency was like peak Don Lemon. People liked him as an Mm anti-Trump crusader. Well, now Trump's gone. His numbers aren't as good. And I think it's like his numbers... A theory is that his numbers dipped to the point where they're like, okay, and now we got more bullshit than numbers. So now you got to go. If mm-hmm. your numbers are great, you can act like a prima donna. And then if you just say you have to keep that quotient in balance. And when it gets out of balance, then you're in trouble. But that's why the Tucker Carlson thing is kind of amazing because he was getting very big numbers. And the Dominion texts are obviously part of this. I don't know how big of a part. He did say some insulting things about the higher-ups in the network in the texts, that's not going to improve your job prospects. It's interesting to me that he somehow assholed his way out of a job even when his numbers were that high. 
Yeah. Well, I, I mean, there's so many things there. I don't think you can plausibly cover Trump for Fox in the next election cycle after you've made it clear the way he did in private texts yeah. that you don't respect the guy, that you hate the guy. I hesitate to think that that's even the problem because it's not the Fox, you know, needs to be coherent or consistent. Uh, it must be that he really angered people the way that he disparaged them. It seems like he had fostered a culture that was somewhat misogynistic. There's a lawsuit. There's a lawsuit. There's, yeah, Fox uh, is taking that more seriously in the post-Roger Ailes era. So there's a lot going on. But, you know, it's really something that, uh, you know, Sean Hannity is still there. <laughs> Laura Egram <laughs> is still there. Yeah. And you can imagine that whoever replaced him. Yeah. yeah this is what I, I said in my Substack piece to argue that there's going to be some continuity. They're not going to give his time slot to Barbara Streisand, right? That's not what's going to happen. Right. It's going to be some other Fox News personality. And uh, it'll be same bullshit, different host, right? I hot take. I'm just throwing this out there, Thomas. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I think you and I do it. Let's let's capture that market. There is an opening. There's a market for xenophobic race baiting stuff. I say you and me. Let's ride this to infinite wealth. What do you think? I don't think that I would make the cut. I I, I don't think I'm. <laughs> I'm not fit for that. But I do think like they Why? should try to shake it up. They should bring someone, man. I'm part of the problem. I'm I'm repl- I'm out here replacing people. <laughs> I'm one of these nefarious people who's 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 mixed uh, who's smuggled um, genes from Africa into the into the white gene pool. Yeah. You know, uh, I'll say mixed black and and kind of mixed French. So two strikes. I'm messing it up. Yeah, I'm messing. The replacement theorists are against that. But okay. uh, they should shake up the model of, of who sits in that chair. I liked uh, Anna Katchian from Red Scare joked on Twitter that, you know, she would take the job. But that actually struck me as if they were really like, if they were interesting, that would be a smart hire, something like that. That would actually be must-see TV. Talk about tough sales to your audience, though. <laughs> <laughs> the audience would love her, I think. All right. Well, all right. So she beat us to it is what I'm hearing. She, she beat us to it. Though yeah, I, I, think so. I might still go for it by myself if that's okay. Let's move on <laughs> to the next thing. Joe Biden, according to Google, is president and he is going to run for re-election, even though, again, according to Google, he's old. What do you think about this? Uh, I think that there's something profoundly soul crushing and depressing and, and bewildering about a Trump Biden rematch in 2024. Oh, it's like one of those here. things that we had <laughs> joked about in the past, we'd kind of feared was coming and here it actually is. It's going to happen. And it's just kind of unbelievable. Like we can't, we're a nation of 300, almost 30 million, maybe more than 330 million people. Yeah. We can't produce anybody <laughs> more compelling on either side, anybody with a bit more energy. It's just scary to me. I 100% agree. It's weird. With, you know, in 2020, we knew these are two historically unpopular candidates. The only election cycle with more unpopular candidates, I believe the polling said, was 2016. (laughs) It was Trump and Hillary Clinton. And yes, (laughs) if we can, if we go back to the same two, it is worth asking why. At least with Joe Biden, I understand why. He is the incumbent president. This would be a total non-story if it wasn't for his age. If he was even a decade younger, it's like, yeah, he's the president. His first term is coming to an end. He's going to run for a second term. Dog bites man, right? It's only because of his age. Yeah, if he does run against Trump, then it is like, folks, what are we doing here? And uh, I, you said profoundly soul-crushing. Those are exactly the words I would choose as well. And I like Joe yeah, Biden. Man. I like Joe Biden. I, I like him too. I just think he's, I wish he was younger. I'm not thrilled about 
the age. And it's not the number. It's that I'm watching the guy and he is clearly not at 100%. He doesn't speak to the press, man. No, he, he doesn't. He doesn't speak to the press. That's a problem, whether it's somebody representing your side of the aisle or the other side of the aisle. It's crazy. We can't have a democracy where the president just goes such long stretches of time without being able to face a question. It's like disrespectful in a way, it's, but we know why he's not trying to be disrespectful. He just, he's not up for it. And that's terrifying. That's really terrifying. I don't know, man. Like maybe let me throw out there that I think some in who work at press in the white house have deduced that you just don't win by giving press conferences. You only lose. It's just walking through a minefield. Are you going to step on a mine or not? The safest play is to just not walk through it. Yeah, but that's the game. That's the game. <laughs> You're the president. You're the president. I mean, that's the game. It, no one said it was going to be easy. Well, in the interest of having an open and transparent democracy, I agree with you that the president should frequently speak to the press, and he doesn't. I assume his age is part of that, but I, I think the other part might just be like, this is a, this is a losing game. It's all just gotcha, so we're just not going to do it. I mean, the same people that are keeping quiet about Biden doing that were complaining to high heaven when Trump had the same mentality. So I just think that yes, we often have a double standard that's really indefensible. Yeah. No, he should talk. I agree. He should talk to the press. Yeah. I'm not a fan of President Macron particularly, but, you know, when he has had um, really bad um, relationships with voters, he's actually hit the road and done just marathon tours of speaking in small town halls and getting yeah. out there and letting actual flesh and blood French voters berate him, question him. And he's had the kind of energy and stamina of like, I don't know, of like a superstar grad student that is really impressive. And it actually did make some people sympathetic to him, especially during the Gilets Jaunes uh, uprisings. I mean, it was just, right. there was something remarkable about a president just being out there and not giving up. And Joe Biden can't even sit for an interview. <laughs> it just feels to me like, man, and I, I, I know it's the least yeah. you could do and he doesn't quite have the energy for it. So I just don't see how he gets on the campaign trail. And, you know, the thing we have to remember is that in 2020, he had this amazing excuse of COVID-19 mm -hmm. making everyone shelter in place. And so he could just do all of these interviews. Oh, he played that card. <laughs> oh, yeah. But what's that? Are we going to bring back, uh, you know, shelter in place so that Joe Biden can comfortably <laughs> campaign from the basement? Probably not. That would probably not make him seem virile and energetic if he's like, oh, I have long COVID, so I'm going to be in the basement again. <laughs> and he just zooms into all his campaign stops from the basement. Yeah, no, it's gonna be very different. Can I throw this out there, by the way, since we're talking about accessibility to the president and the president have to having to, you know, defend his positions. I kind of always like questions to the prime minister. I sort of wanted us to do questions to the prime minister or, you know, the president, of course, in the United States. Is that crazy? I mean, it's such a ruckus atmosphere that they have in Britain where the prime minister, get, it's like a, it's it's like half Oxford debate and half rap battle because they're all trying to dunk on each other. And they got their crew behind them like, yeah, <laughs> I would kind of love to see that in the U.S. Would you? Yeah, they have skills too. I mean, they're impressive. The Brits are the, the Brits do some things pretty well, but in the US it would be a different vibe. You've got members of Congress like so Lauren Boebert from Colorado who are actually packing on the on the house floor. So I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if the equivalent would be would be safe in America if it got out of hands, you know, some of these Congress women are strapped. It's just a different it's a different landscape. Perhaps. I don't know. It's it's kind of something I always wanted to see. But with Biden, Marjorie Taylor Greene, bust a cap in your ass. I mean, it's at least the right forum for those people, right? They're, right now, they're yelling during the State of the Union. Yell during questions to the yeah. president. It's when you're supposed to yell. I don't know. This, that's my two I cents. agree. 
But leave the, leave the guns at home. Yes, please. Well, I think that's a good standing rule, uh, always, in my opinion. But with Biden, I have written that I kind of wished he would just sail off into the sunset because I do have concerns about his ability to do the job at the end. Because we got to realize, like, we're talking about he's going to go through the beginning of 2029 if he wins. He will be 86 <laughs> at that point. Jesus. I feel like he's hanging in there okay now. I voted for him in 2020 thinking, okay, yeah, he can make it to 2024. And I still feel that way. But boy, 2029, I kind of hoped he would ride off into the sunset. That's not happened. We Now he's the guy. And I, I hope nothing weird happens in terms of his health in the next year or so and leads to some, suddenly it's Kamala and it's very odd how few Kamala Harris fans are floating around out there. She does not seem to have captured the imagination of the American people. And I don't know. I I, I just, I, I hope nothing weird happens. I hope this is a normal campaign, but I'm not optimistic. It's not, it hasn't started out with normal campaign attack ads, has it? Oh God. You're talking about the uh, AI ad? Yeah, that's that's some crazy looking dystopian yeah, but, uh, political future that we're stepping into. Yeah, let's bring this up. And actually, I think we could, because this is fair use if we're discussing it, which we are, why don't we play at least part of the Republican ad against Joe Biden, which is already out. They somehow knew who's going to run. They've already got it ready to go. Let's play a little bit of that right now. This just in, we can now call the 2024 presidential race for Joe Biden. This morning, an emboldened China invades Taiwan. Financial markets are in free fall as 500 regional banks have shuttered their doors. Border agents were overrun by a surge of 80,000 illegals yesterday evening. Officials closed the city of San Francisco this morning, citing the escalating crime and fentanyl crisis. Who's in charge here? It feels like the train is coming off the tracks. I mean, that's the good thing about uh, chat GPT is you know, <laughs> AI can whip up that attack ad in a matter of minutes, I'm sure. It, it probably took no time at all to make that thing. And it seemed very much of the style of a Republican attack ad. It's like chat GPT nailed it. Was it written, was it written by chat GPT or was it just the images in it? were AI generated. No, I think it was it's Dolly or one of these programs. The whole thing is AI generated. Um, that's a good question if the text was, but all of the images were like Dolly or one of these programs. But it's kind of crazy. I mean, if you actually need to have a completely artificially designed vision of the American dystopia, I mean, Biden's America can't be that bad if you can't get one single uh, <laughs> real life image to, <laughs> to incorporate into your tech ad. It's all imaginary. I mean, it's one of the just most cynical uh, playing to the lowest um, yeah. fear mongering tendencies of the, of the Republican Party that I've seen in a long time. It's pathetic. But, you know, I don't think I don't discount that it's influential. Fear mongering, lowest common denominator. Hey, a very accurately AI generated political ad, right? That's what they are. You're you're mm-hmm. playing to the people. I find these ads incredibly odd in a presidential campaign, especially because I, I just don't understand who people are who are going to vote. But, you know, it's the Sunday before the election and they don't really know who Joe Biden and Donald Trump are. So they need to be informed yeah. by a television commercial who they are. And in this case, it's unbelievable because they're just creating an entirely made up scenario. They just go, all right, what if this happened? And they, you know, stock market crash, war. It's like, yeah, what if that happened? That'd be really bad. Uh, but 
like you said, if you have to just pull things completely out of your ass, then it's maybe not a strong point about how the nation is actually doing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unconvincing. I can't see how that persuades uh, anybody on the fence. I don't see how anybody could be on the fence at this point. I mean, this has got to be one of the most set in place uh, oppositions in recent political history. I mean, who could be wavering from Biden over to Trump at this point or vice versa? Maybe vice versa is possible, but I don't see that. But, you know, there's something even more disturbing than just the immediate political landscape that we're talking about. And that's just like the premonition an ad like this gives you of how our politics is going to be run through artificial intelligence, both in the the visual designs, but also you can imagine in the not so distant future that actually like chat GPT and programs like that will be writing political messaging, writing candidate speeches, and we'll just be having AI versus AI kind of non-human scripted political arguments that our flesh and blood candidates simply ventriloquize. That's a terrifying kind of awful future, no matter which party is ultimately victorious. It's There's something really profoundly depressing about that as well. That would bother me more if I was not already of the opinion that most political rhetoric is a giant bowl of elephant shit. <laughs> but I am of that opinion. And I think if you, you know, listen to most debates, I mean, God, the Republican primary debates, I always watch them, but they do make me just sort of, you know, sad for humanity generally. The level of debate yeah. is so low. The rhetoric, level of rhetoric is so low. And look, when I was a very young man, I worked in politics and it did become immediately apparent to me that you are going after, let me just use blunt words, the dumbest voters out there. The only people who, do, most people know who they're going to vote for. Most people who follow politics, right. for better or for worse, they've got their opinions. They know who they're going to vote for. And you can't pull one over on them because they know a lot. But we're allowed to use the term low information voter. I can't believe that is a phrase that like has entered the lexicon <laughs> and we're allowed to use. But OK, I said stupid a second ago. Instead, let me say low information voters will actually hear this dumb rhetoric and go for it. They're very easily fooled. I feel like that's where we are now. That's unfortunate. If you're telling me that in the future it's going to be AI generated, my response to that is kind of shrug and go like, OK, well, you know, it wasn't uh, wasn't exactly Socrates to begin with. So what have we really lost? Yeah, you're right. It, it wasn't. It's it's been a while since we've had like the Lincoln Douglas debates or <laughs> that yeah. like kind of soaring oratory. <laughs> I don't think like uh, what's my man's name, the former governor from Texas, Rick Scott. Rick, Rick Perry. Is that who I'm thinking of? Rick Perry. Yeah. Yes, Rick Perry. He's not holding it down for. He's he's not the guy who forgot which agency he was going to eliminate during a debate. Yes. Which is pretty incredible. During a debate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's not Lincoln Douglas level. No, it's not. Let's move on. The Wall Street Journal this week had an article about equitable grading. Equitable grading. I'll bet most people can hear that phrase and guess what it is. It is, uh, and I will try to summarize as best as I can here. It's a bunch of hippy dippy grading stuff. That's kind of, uh, oh, let's not take participation into account. Let's not take attendance into account. Uh, Let's give students more time to finish a paper if they need to. Uh, Various, and it varies, but just various methods of giving students more latitude in a number of ways. The Wall Street Journal says, 
this is kind of sneaky the way they do this. They say, this is happening in dozens of school districts. I would point out that there are about 13,800 public school districts in the United States. So to say, this is happening in dozens of school districts, look, the stuff that they describe, in my opinion, it's pretty dumb, hippy-dippy grading bullshit. I'm not a fan of that. There are a lot of things they describe. I'm like, I don't think that's going to work. But I also, that's my first thought. My second thought is the Wall Street Journal is inflating how prevalent this stuff is. It's in dozens of districts. Okay, again, 13,800. And they also say at one point, this is an exact quote, equitable grading can take different forms. So, okay, we're not talking about an organized movement here. We're talking about just kind of being a squishy hippie weirdo as a teacher. That's so I think they're kind of maybe trying to scare us a little bit too much. Nonetheless, a lot of this stuff is kind of, you know, again, like this sounds like a bad idea from a grading perspective. Thomas, you're in academia. Do you have thoughts on on what they're doing and uh, how bad it is or good? Well, I do think, you know, you're right to point out that it's not, um, this is not necessarily coming to a school near you anytime soon, but it is actually more prevalent than I think a lot of people realize. And this kind of mentality takes shape in different forms, um, in different ways. And it's kind of, there's an ethos to, there's a momentum to the idea that uh, equity is the ultimate goal in all aspects of social life and in all institutions. And that could take a variety of forms, one of which is the idea that uh, grading itself is exclusionary. So it kind of introduces a a paradox, which is that uh, you can't have equitable grading, actually. Like uh, grading is hierarchical. Yes. The the phrase itself sounds like an oxymoron. By design, by definition, it is. I mean, (laughs) and there isn't actually something inherent wrong with every form of hierarchy. You know, I don't think that um, we want to live in a society where we lose track that some people uh, perform certain tasks better than others and not everybody performs every task equally well. I think grading uh, in a way that takes into account the fact that certain students have levels of poverty that are difficult to overcome, you know, there's there's a place for human compassion that doesn't throw out the idea of meritocracy. I don't think that this is necessarily, I'll put it this way, I don't think that it's necessarily the biggest problem in the country right now, but I, I'm, I'm probably more disturbed by it than you are. And one thing that struck me is that the journal did say that one guy named Joe Feldman, an Oakland, California-based former teacher and administrator uh, who wrote a book in 2018 on grading for equity has been selling his program all across Albuquerque uh, for to the tune of three quarters of a million dollars. It seems that there's quite a lot of money to be made for somebody that latches on to certain terminology and and has a program, you know, to let people have the kind of, well, you can, you can assuage your own guilt and you can feel better about, you know, whatever's going on in your district. If people aren't performing well, if you kind of sign on to these, you buy these indulgences, essentially. Yes. And it's part of a larger oh. indulgence. Te- you cannot inoculate yourself yes. to somebody who shows up at a PTA meeting and says, what are you doing about equity? You can say, oh, well, we, whatever it is, bought the materials, uh, had a session with, you know, are consulting with the equity guru dude. 
who, like you said, at this guy is this guy from California. Robin D'Angelo, obviously education is not her thing, but she's in this area. By the way, Thomas, my proposal for us, if the Tucker Carlson replacement thing doesn't work out for you and me, we should definitely get in on the equity grift because this guy is proving once again, there is a market for this <laughs> stuff. And I don't know why we are so blind to these markets. But yes, you can always say, hey, don't get mad at me. We checked that box. And I think that's a lot of what's going on here. Yeah, uh, the best analysis came from a senior Ed W. Clark High School in Las Vegas uh, named Samuel Huang, who said the grading changes provide incentives for poor work habits. He himself is a straight-A student headed to the University of Chicago next year, and he said that even classmates in honors and advanced placement classes are prone to skip class now unless there is an exam. There is an apathy that pervades the entire classroom, he said. And, you know, I don't know. I, I, he's right. I, I mean, if you tell me that... <laughs> If you tell me that you can hand in a paper when I say it's due, or if that doesn't yeah. work for you, you have until the last day of class to hand it in, man, there goes yeah, the whole class. Yeah. And if you tell me that attendance doesn't matter, I mean, I'm teaching at the university level. And the number one thing I have to stress is that attendance is mandatory. If that it, Your grade will tank if you don't show up to class because were yeah. I to say that it's not it's negotiable it's not mandatory even highly motivated university kids who are paying an arm and a leg to be at school that they don't have to be at would not show up to enough classes that it would that, that it would be a different <laughs> their parents are paying an arm and a leg for them to get the education if they're there, if they're like me they're there because they don't want to be at home anymore and they don't want to go into the navy so college it is and uh, you're hanging out and then the classes, it's the thing you do because you have to do them. Except if you don't have to do them, then uh, yeah, that's going by the wayside. I, I want to say- me, Let me ask you this. Yeah. How would you feel if you were getting ready to go into the operating room and, and, and they told you, well, you know, here, your, your surgeon will be with you momentarily. She graduated, uh, you know, she, she was an equity-based A student uh, <laughs> and got into medical school based on a new equitable understanding of the MCATs. And she'll be right with you uh, for that heart surgery you've been waiting for. Or, you're, you're, you know, your you're pilot passed flight school with an equity-based agenda. I, I, I mean, I don't think that most of us would, we would go back to well, a kind of understanding of the meritocratic way of getting through flight school, I think. Yes. I, I mean, certainly in that scenario, my first response would be, oh God, why am I still conscious? Where are my <laughs> sedatives? I'm supposed to be knocked out. Where's the anesthesiologist? Let's talk about that person's credentials because I am not supposed to be conscious right now. But my second response would be, yes, I want a doctor <laughs> who passed muster entirely on their merits and really passed muster in a quite rigorous system because, yeah, they're about to cut me open open and tinker with my heart. So please, let's make sure they aced those exams. Right. You don't even want that Rand Paul went to school in the Caribbean type doctor. You you want the... <laughs> Went in the you know the the, no. the the continental United States. Nothing, nothing <laughs> on the internet. No University of Phoenix. No Devry. No offense, no. folks, but yeah, no I, no. I want a brand fucking name. I do want to, just to be completely fair to what these uh, what equitable grading is, as described in this Wall Street Journal article. I want to make it clear they do say there are tests at the end. They're not arguing for like no tests. Right. It is more like you don't have to show up to class if you don't want to. You don't have to complete this particular assignment on this day if you don't want to. You say it should be. Monday, maybe you turn it in Thursday and that's fine. That's the type of thing. They are still arguing for tests. I do agree that if you think attendance is important, if you think hitting deadlines is important, uh, then the second you say, all right, those aren't part of your grade, then those go out the window. And I do want to mention that I have a very strong opinion 
on squishy hippie grading systems, and as I do not do not like them, and that is because I attended the Evergreen State College for the freshman freshman year of college, <laughs> actually the first two thirds of freshman year. And some listeners might know that's where Brett Weinstein was, right? Indeed, yeah, that's where he started out. Yeah, and it's that wow. type of yeah. place. If you know the whole Brett Weinstein story, or at least the beginning of the Brett Weinstein yeah. story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Evergreen State College, that type of place. Very, very, very lefty environment. And they do not have grades. They do not have grades. You have written evaluations. They are utter bullshit. I had a friend, <laughs> and he was a good friend of mine. Like, we we were roommates. We were in the same little, you know, we didn't share a room, but we shared, like, a bathroom and a kitchen, right? He didn't say a word, literally, not one word during seminar all quarter, and then got... Uh, participates in seminar seminar with vigor in his written evaluation. And that, I felt, was the biggest moment of hard proof I could ever come across that these evaluations are just utter bullshit. So I don't like <laughs> the squishy grading systems. I think they lead to a bunch of nothing. They are describing some systems here that uh, if they popped up in my kid's school and my son is four months old, so he doesn't go to school. But one day, if they were to pop in my school, I would go, hang on a minute. Nonetheless, I think people, should, just because you give it a scary sounding name, equitable grading, I think people should not be too worried that this is sweeping the nation. I think this is more just sort of crap that has always been out there. Uh, see, I really got to disagree there. I don't think that this... I, this mentality has always been out there. I really feel like it may you I, I, where I would I, I think I partially agree with you. These are scaremongering stories for sure that are catnip for readers that want to be incensed based on aspects of of our contemporary reality, but not representative of the totality. But I do think it's new. I don't think that these mentalities were really something that were even fringe to this extent when, for example, I was um, in middle school or in high school. It just wasn't on the table that you would, um, even in, okay. you know, the kinds of schools where you had students that really were struggling with a lot of socioeconomic uh, difficulties and setbacks. I don't think that mm -hmm. it would, I mean, even my friends and I, some of whom were bussed in from inner city Newark and were certainly juggling a lot outside of school, it wouldn't have occurred to them to say that the grading system was structurally unjust because they had to take care of their sister after school and their mother was not home. This just wasn't in our grammar to conceive yeah. of things this way. And, to, and, and, and we didn't have this kind of resort to a language of uh, equity talk. That has penetrated the mainstream kind of yeah. recently. There is, by, by calling it equitable grading, there is an implication that if you come from a disadvantaged circumstance, and there's obviously a racial element to that, you can, you know, assume that by somebody's race that they're coming from a certain uh, circumstance, even though that's a really, that's a really bad way to make assumptions. Mm -hmm. But there is this implication mm -hmm. that basically the implication is that you can play the I'm disadvantaged card and get out of jail free, right? If you didn't turn the paper in on time, if you show up to class late, you can say, oh, it's because I'm disadvantaged because mm -hmm. the example they gave in the article, I had to drop a sibling off somewhere else or, you know, just some other, I had a job. Hey, I had a job in high school. Like I had a job or whatever. I did too. Yeah. I also would not have thought to say, hey, I couldn't do this because I was working at Wendy's last night. I wish I had thought to say, but you know what? If I had thought to say that, it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> Um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't in anybody's brain. And I also feel like teachers can't adjudicate like who has pressures and who doesn't. I mean, you, you know, right. you're making the teacher no way. try to be the arbiter of like, what is an advantage circumstance and what's a disadvantage circumstance? I mean, what if a student comes in and say, my parents had a huge fight last night. 
okay, I can see how that would fuck with a kid's head, but you're going to respond to all those claims all the time. There has to be a point where you say, look, either you got it done or you didn't. That being said, let me argue against myself. There's always like compassion in a teacher. There always is. My mom was a teacher for 40 years and is still, by the way, she's 73. She's tutoring here at DC schools. She is kind of the answer to the question, what do you do with a kid who struggles? Because what they do is they pair her off with the kids who need help with reading, the kids who need help with math. That's what you get. You don't get your own special grading system. You get Ellen Maurer tutoring you with your vowel sounds. Yeah, if you're lucky. So there is room for compassion. There is, yeah, if, if you're lucky. Absolutely. And if you're lucky, you get a committed teacher like, like Ellen Maurer. But I would go f- a little bit further and say that, you know, if you're disadvantaged and if life is a bit harder for you, you actually really do need to overcome adversity and figure out how to get assignments in on time and how to handle the kind of juggling that you have to do because it's not like it's not like the whole world is on it's on the same true. page with the equity agenda and that yeah, the difficulties that you face are just going to always be taken into account in every situation i mean many of the skills that would allow you to transcend uh, the limitations of your condition when you're poor and when you're disadvantaged and when you're in a marginalized ethnic background are best served by mastering the kind of skills that allow you to have success in school when people demand the highest uh, standards uh, to be met, not when they kind of meet you where your difficulties are and, and, and change the standards because you've been dealt a hard hand. I really believe that. I know that that's not really what a lot of people want to hear. And that's kind of victim blaming is, I guess, the terminology for it now, but it's not blaming anybody. It's just, you know, it's looking at what successful marginalized people have done throughout history. It's by mastering the kind of skills and discipline that um, is true. People from more comfortable backgrounds don't always have to exhibit to get to the same place. But I don't know when we ever got the kind of idea that all of life could be engineered into being perfectly fair. It just doesn't seem to me that that's a reality in the animal kingdom. It's not a reality on any level of, of observable material existence. So why would it be a reality in human society? It's crazy to me. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. That does seem to be uh, perhaps the central flaw here is this idea that you can correct for all of the world's unfairness and injustices, which are very real, sort of at the end of the process, when it comes to the grading, when it comes to the hiring, when it comes to something else, when you just can't. I, I sometimes feel like it's not just that that doesn't work. It's also that almost feels like a bit of a cheat because it maybe allows you to neglect actually fixing the problem, actually fixing, you know, injustices, unequal access, because there are unequal access in terms of obviously resources, material wealth, geographic location, what's around you, what you have access to. It's better to work on those things than to try to engineer on the back end. Oh, hang on, you're from a rough part of town. So in fact, you don't have to complete the history paper on time. And I think your point about, hey, you're going to have to learn this one way or the other, you might as well learn it now. I think it's an excellent one. I mean, that's where we're headed. It's like the comment you said was a joke, but it's kind of already something you could imagine being said. You're from a rough part of town, so you don't have the same assignment as the kid from the nice part of town. I mean, it's it's really a weird way of, uh, we're, we're entering into a kind of um, strange landscape. And I think once we really start talking more and more about genetic differences, which we inevitably have to do, just the genetic differences that exist between individuals. I mean, how are you ever going to balance out for people? You're not making a, a racial genetics point. No, not at all. But just like if you if you are a parent, I believe you only have one child, right? I know people think you're talking about groups, but you're a parent of one child. As soon as you have 
another child, you realize that there's no equality in any measure within families. Two kids are never going to be equal at any given task, at any given demand on their attention, what have you. It's just not going to be able to be made. I know this with my nephews. Great kids, two boys, two years apart, different human beings, different human beings. Yeah. Well, I think it's an excellent point that uh, you got to learn it eventually, because as we have learned with uh, Tucker Carlson, Don Lemon or Joe Biden, if you're doing a bad job, people will boot you. So better to learn that sooner than later. Thomas, good talking to you as always. Good talking to you too, Jeff. See you next week. Have a good week. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.